I just, I just want to start by reading the text to you. I mean, I thought about a hundred different ways this week that I could actually begin the Easter sermon. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but if you're a preacher, like, it's kind of a big deal. It's the Easter sermon, right? I mean, come on. And of all the ways that I thought about beginning this message, I just kept coming back to the text. So I want to just begin in Matthew chapter 28, and I want to read the first 10 verses. We're going to put a lot of the scriptures on the screen today. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. If you want to borrow a Bible and just make sure I'm telling the truth, we have some in the book racks underneath the seats. You can read it for yourself. Matthew chapter 28, I want to read the first 10 verses. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and they became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come on. Amen. This next verse defines who the church is in four words. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. Some of you are here because church members followed these four words. Come, see, go, tell. Come and see, go and tell the disciples. He is risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him. Now I have told you, verse eight. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy and they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Can you imagine this moment? I mean, they went to visit the tomb. It didn't say they went to visit Jesus. They went to visit the tomb. They didn't even know if anybody was going to be able to get the stone out of their way. And suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. Understatement of the year. Right? I'm like, da-da! Greetings, he said. They came to him. They clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. You gotta love the Easter story. I mean, maybe you don't have to, but you want to. I mean, listen, you don't even have to be a Christian to love this story. You don't even have to be a believer. You just need to be human. There's something in every one of us that wants to believe that when everything is lost, when everything is hopeless, when hope has died, that somehow, some way, just maybe, you can rise up from the ashes of defeat and stand in victory. That's Easter. I mean, come on, we wanna love this story. We wanna think that this could be possible in my life. I got to be honest with you. I mean, every Sunday I get up to preach, the tomb is empty. Amen? 
It's not just once a year. The tomb is empty. Jesus has risen. He's alive. He has conquered. And and that's exciting. But I'll just be honest with you. There's something about Easter Sunday. There's something about getting up this morning. I got up this morning, as I always do on Sundays, before the sun rises, and, and and I put the coffee on, and and I pulled the curtain back. The sun hadn't come up yet, but this thought crossed my mind as it just started to come up. I thought, the sun's rising on Easter. Anything's possible. I mean, come on, that's Easter. Anything is possible. One moment, these women are are walking to the tomb. They're, They're going to honor the lifeless body of their leader. They're going to the tomb to mourn their loss. And in the next moment, they are clinging to the feet and worshiping the Savior. Come on, that's Easter. If anything is possible, suddenly, verse 9 said, suddenly, Jesus met them. I I can tell I'm more excited this morning than you are, but I'm going to just, I'm going to keep coming at you, so get ready. Here's what I believe, that no matter how bad it's been, No matter how bad it looks, no matter how long it's been that way, I just believe today that if you will get up on Easter Sunday and go back to the place where you last saw Jesus, you might have a suddenly moment. Jesus can meet you in this moment. Amen? Amen. That's my hope for today. You made the right call. If you were still not sure... You made the right call. You got up. You made the trip. You're here. It's Easter. Suddenly, Jesus met them. See, there's a word that God spoke to me for this year. Back six months into last year, the word was lift. And so we've preached that word this year. We've we've prayed that word. We've talked about what that... uh, the implications are out of the scripture for that word in our life as a church and in our life groups and... And I just want to say to you today that my heart and my conviction is that God has called us to lift people. You you ought to leave today better than you came. We're, We're here to lift people. We want to encourage people. But here's what I've learned to be true. I can't lift somebody that I can't touch. That's why it's so important that that you that you be a part of God's family. That you be connected to other believers because people can't lift you if they can't reach you. And so I, we learned this this year. As a staff, we, we learned firsthand the power of being connected to the body of Christ. As many of you are well aware, over the last year, we, we walked with Pastor Chris and, and Brittany through her cancer diagnosis. And, and, and as difficult as this last year has been for them, we've, we've been amazed to see how God has used the body of Christ, how he's used people to come around them and to encourage them and to bless them and, and to lift them. And about two months ago, Brittany took some time to articulate where she's at and, and where their story has been. Some of you might have seen this video on social media, but I just want to take a moment to, to let you hear her words and her story before we look any farther into this text. So watch this with us today. March 1st, 2018 is a day that I will never forget. I went into the breast care center. Uh, I was supposed to have just a quick ultrasound, um, not a big deal at all. Uh, It was supposed to be a half an hour appointment. 
And what ended up being a half an hour turned into four and a half hours. And I remember thinking something wasn't right. I remember the radiologist coming in and she's staring at the computer and staring at the images and uh, I just felt scared. And I saw her go over to the sink, she washed her hands and I'm sitting there and she turns around and she says, I'm sorry to tell you this, but I think you have cancer. And I just remember my first thought was, what about my kids? You know, at that time, they were uh, five and two years old. I also thought, what about my husband, Chris? Uh, I'm not ready to leave this earth, you know, and leave them with no mom or with no wife. After finding out that I had cancer, I was angry. I didn't think it was fair. Why would God do this? Why, would, why me, out of all people? Um, I don't want to go through this. I don't, I don't want to be brave. I don't want to, you know, uh, smile in all of this because it's not good news. I knew that this was something I was going to overcome, but I knew that there was two paths that I could choose. Uh, one was going down the path of cancer consuming my life, um, defining who I was, or I could choose the other path and um, know that God is in control of all this and He's going to give me a supernatural joy. I can't change my circumstance and all of it, but I can change the perspective of it and fly. And to be honest, I feel like I have gone that path and I'm rocking it. And I remember there were certain points where I'd be washing the dishes or, you know, in the shower or, um, you know, cleaning up or doing laundry. And, you know, I just would start bawling and tears would just come down and I could feel, um, I could feel God's presence in all of this. And he laid on my heart that this is going to be okay, that his hand is in all of this, and I just need to trust in him. I am still fighting. I have chemo until April, uh, and then another big surgery planned after that. Um, and I don't know what my outcome is. I don't know if I'm cancer-free. Um, I hope I am, and I pray that I am. But I do know that... Um, Whatever the outcome is, that God's in control. I definitely feel that this experience has brought me closer to God in all of this. Uh, it's giving me that supernatural joy that is only from God. And um, I am definitely not the same person. My family has changed as well. It's awesome. Chris and I have been at Wrightsville Assembly of God for three years, um, and I can honestly say that every single one of you have been family to me. This is the first time in my life that I literally feel lifted by people's prayers, so I just want to thank Wrightsville and thank, thank each one of you for being there by my side and praying for me and crying with me and hugging me and getting me through some of that. It's been everything to me.
There's uh, one thing that I've learned throughout this journey that uh, God is faithful. Whatever mountain that you have in front of you that just feels like it's crumbling or whatever problem that you're going through that feels hopeless, God is there to be with you and He is for you and He will never let you go. Amen. Wow. I just want to add my amen to that incredible, incredible testimony. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your story looks like or where you're at in it, but I believe what Brittany said is true. God's hand is in all of this. And it doesn't always look like that, but he never lets go. And so my hope is that you would find encouragement, that you would be lifted. See, Mary discovered something that morning she went to the tomb. Mary realized that the highest place you can be lifted is bowed down at the feet of Jesus. That when she was there clasping his feet and worshiping the Savior, there's no higher place than that. And Jesus said this about himself in John chapter 12 in verse 32. Jesus said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So on this Easter Sunday, we just want to lift up Jesus. We want to lift him higher, and I'm believing that he's going to draw you to himself because there's no higher place you can be than to find yourself right there at the feet of Jesus. And so before we dive any deeper into the Easter story, I want to pray right here and right now for some heavy hearts because you look good on Sunday morning. But I know the the clothes don't tell the whole story. And if you're here today and your heart is heavy, I want to pray for you. Would you just bow your head with me all over this room? Father, thank you that you brought us together. And in this moment, God, you know every need. You know every burden. You know every pain. You know every question. You know every fear. You know every disappointment. You know every apprehension. God, there's nothing that we're facing that you're not only aware of, but you're also victorious over. You are the king of kings. You rule and you reign. And we're going to hear that today. We're going to read that today. We're going to declare that today on this Resurrection Sunday. And Lord, I pray right now that you would lift heavy hearts, that you would lift heavy hands today, that people who are despairing and hurting, God, they would feel encouraged and inspired as they lift their head and look into the eyes of a risen Savior. God, we thank you today for your presence in this moment. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. 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 If that was for you, just receive that today. Here's what I want to do. I want to just look back at the most significant week in human history. As as we were thinking about what Easter Sunday was going to look like, boy, there's so many places I could have preached I even told my daughter this week, I said, next, next year I'm going to do it different. I'm just going to preach a, an Easter series. I'm not going to preach Easter Sunday. I'm going to preach Easter series because I can't get it all out in a day. But what I want to do is I want us to just look at this most significant week in human history. It began on Palm Sunday, which we celebrate last weekend, and it culminates on Easter Sunday that we celebrate today. And I want to invite you to just follow Jesus with me into this week 
as we learn a little bit more about our Savior. It begins on Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, that's the, the week that, that people are getting ready to celebrate the Passover. The Jewish people have a festival that's taking place in the city of Jerusalem. And so every year, people from all over that region go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the, the city of David, so that they can celebrate this Passover feast. Jesus is making his way with his disciples on Palm Sunday. And on this particular year, on this day, the Bible says in Matthew 21, verse 7 through 9, after Jesus had given his disciples specific instructions, it says they brought the donkey and the colt, and they placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now let me just tell you, this is not a song they just made up. This is a song that people sing every year. As they were getting ready to go to celebrate the Passover, that was a celebration to remember God's salvation in their history. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, we learn about the Passover lamb, where God had promised that he was going to send a death angel throughout Egypt. That's where God's people were being held in captivity for 400 years. And he said, there's a death angel that's coming into Egypt, and it's going to take the life of every firstborn in every home, except for in the homes who have sacrificed a lamb unto the Lord. One lamb for each family and take the blood of the lamb and smear it over the doorpost of your home and when the death angel comes and he sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your home he will pass over you it's a beautiful picture in the old testament of salvation that judgment was coming to every house not just to the egyptian houses but also to the jewish houses except for those that were covered by the blood of the lamb and so every year they would celebrate and they would remember god's covenant and his promise and they would sacrifice the lamb and they would eat the passover meal together and they would sing this song in anticipation of it hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord they were looking for another moses they were looking for another deliverer, or maybe even better, they were looking for another death angel who would come and, and deliver them out of bondage. What they didn't realize is that Jesus wasn't coming to be either of those. He was coming to be the lamb. He was coming to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. So all of these people are celebrating and they're singing on Palm Sunday because the buzz was growing about Jesus' ministry. He had just resurrected Lazarus after being dead for four days. He's front page news and everybody's excited when they see this prophet coming from Galilee. And they begin to wave the palm branches and they sing that song and they're thinking just maybe he's the one. Maybe this is the time. Maybe our deliverance is here. But while they're worshiping, the Bible says Jesus is weeping. Luke tells us about it. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, it says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Why, why would Jesus be weeping? Well, everyone's waving the branches and worshiping him. Why would he be weeping? And I'll tell you why this morning. It's because Jesus sees your heart. 
He sees their heart. He looks right into the situation and he knows the reality is that the people have missed the time of their visitation. Jesus knows that in just a little while, that, that enemies are going to come and they're going to ransack the city. The, the temple is going to be destroyed. Not One stone will be on top of another. It's going to be utterly destroyed. He knows the judgment is coming and they're blind to his offer of salvation. See, th- there's a, a term that is often repeated in the gospels about Jesus. And, and it says this, it says he was moved with compassion. Jesus was moved with compassion. See, the reality is Jesus is is concerned. He's motivated. He's propelled by broken people and by broken lives. He's moved with compassion for people. And can I just say that it's no different today. Over 2,000 years later, it's no different today that while we're, we're waving our hands and we're singing our songs, God, though he loves and appreciates your praise, he is less concerned with your singing than he is with your soul. And for some of us, the reality is the same, that he's looking at your heart. He's looking at your brokenness. And while we're worshiping, the heart of God weeps for you because he doesn't want you to miss the day of your visitation. Can I challenge us today? I mean, the songs are beautiful. Your clothes, they look great. The smiles on your faces, they're beautiful. But Jesus has come to give peace. He's come to minister to your soul, to your heart, and to your life, and a song just will not do. I want to challenge you today. Don't miss the day of your visitation. The Bible, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, writing about this, it says in verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Now, I just got to tell you, that's what I love about Easter. I love the fact that everybody knows it's Easter, at least in America. Everybody knows. I mean, we can thank Walmart for decorating, you know, to make everybody aware. We can thank Hallmark for putting out all those cards to make sure nobody forgot. Now, not everybody is interested in worshiping the Savior, but everybody knows it's Easter. It's Easter, and, and just like there is in our culture today, there was a buzz in the city. Who is this? What is this about? What's going on? Some people came uh, with hearts hungry for truth. Other people just came out of curiosity. I don't know why you came, but we all know it's Easter, and the people are craning their necks to get a look at this Savior. And the Bible says in the next verse, verse 11, the crowd answered the people, this is Jesus. He's the prophet of Nazareth in Galilee. Now, to be quite honest, their, their theology and their song was better than their statement. When they sang the song, they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Hosanna means save now. There was faith. There was anticipation. There was expectation in their song. Save now. But then when somebody asks them, who is this? Oh, he's a prophet from Nazareth. He's a teacher. Can I just challenge us today that we don't let the theology of our singing be greater than the theology of our souls and of our confession but that when someone asks us, who is this Jesus, that we would know he is the God who saves now. He is the Messiah. He is the deliverer. He is the promised coming king. So Jesus comes into the city and he's weeping. Now let's look at Monday. He stayed overnight in the home of his friend Lazarus in Bethany. And on Monday, he comes back to the temple. 
Yesterday, he walked in to make an assessment. Today, he's on an assignment. Yesterday, they were waving palm branches and they were worshiping. Today, there's still a lot of waving going on, but it's not branches. It's a whip, and it's in Jesus' hand. The Bible says that Jesus came into the temple on Monday with a whip in his hand. Listen to these verses in Matthew 21. It says, he entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those that were selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Maybe you didn't know this, Jesus, but he's upset. He's mad. Some of you, you just realized for the first time in your life, you're more like Jesus than you thought. You're like, I'm mad every Monday. Like, I, I'm just like Jesus. He's mad, but he's mad for a righteous reason. See, what he sees when he walks into the temple on Monday is he sees people that are choosing to worship out of convenience instead of sacrifice. You see, the Old Testament law prescribed that they would bring their offering to Jerusalem, and rather than raising that lamb and, and bringing it along with them or, or caging that dove and, and carrying it with them in their caravan, they just decided, yeah, let's just buy an offering when we get there. That'll be a lot less hassle. And so the people show up into Jerusalem empty-handed. They show up to meet God empty-handed and empty-hearted, and they get to the temple and they go, ah, oh, we'll just buy a sacrifice here. And on the other end of that deal are people that are realizing that they can extort them with a convenience fee. You want to buy your sacrifice here? We'll sell you one. It's going to cost you twice as much, but we'll sell you one. So the people are, are being ripped off in the house of God. Not only that, but they had decided that you could only purchase your offering with a local coin. So everybody had to go and have their money exchanged. And the exchange rate was through the roof. They were robbing the people. And Jesus sees all of this on Monday morning. And he gets angry. He gets irritated with the people. See, here, here's the thing about Jesus. You, you got to understand. Make no mistake about it. Jesus loves you just the way that you are. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. And so when Jesus sees something in our lives that, that, is, that is incongruent with the confession of our faith, when we're saying we believe one thing, but we're living something else, Jesus, there's a righteousness that rises up in him that wants to make room for righteousness again. And the Bible says this about you and me in 1 Corinthians. It says, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So we don't go to an Old Testament temple, but the Spirit of God lives inside of us. And, and I just sense that sometimes God wants to crack the whip on the thieves and the robbers that have taken up residence in my own life. I don't know about you, but since you're not saying amen, I'll just preach to me. Sometimes I let thoughts, fears, and worries, and any and every other thing extort too much of my time and my attention and my heart. I'm being taken advantage of sometimes by the lies of the enemy. And I just believe that Jesus wants to step into those moments. And he wants to turn some tables over. He wants to make some room for righteousness to rule and reign in the house in this temple of the Holy Spirit again. 
And I just began to pray, even this week as I was preparing to preach this to you, I just had to stop. And I just had to say, Holy Spirit, cleanse this temple. Lord, make room. Make room again. Lord, if you've got to turn some tables over and run some robbers out of the house, God, I want my temple. I want my life to be a place where my confession lines up with my song, where my life is aligned with your word. And I just began to ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, do it again. Do it in me. See, here's the thing. Sometimes God sees the condition of your life and he weeps. Sometimes he whips. (laughs) But here's the thing about Jesus. He always does it with a redemptive end in mind. God is not up in heaven looking down at you going, I can't believe you showed up in my house today. (laughs) That's not the heart of God. He's not down there ready to, you know, ready to thump you on the back of your head when you get out of line. No, the heart of God is always redemptive. There's one thing the Holy Spirit is always, always, always doing. He's lifting us up towards Jesus. He's exalting Jesus. He's drawing us upward. So sometimes he's weeping over our condition, and sometimes even through difficult circumstances, we feel like he's whipping us. But let me tell you, it's always to bring us closer to the heart of the Father. That's the heart of Jesus, to reconcile us. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow leads to repentance. There is such a thing as godly sorrow. And it's different than worldly sorrow because worldly sorrow only brings death. It only brings destruction. It only brings chaos. But God can use a difficult situation to turn it for good in your life. And that's what we see on Monday and on Tuesday Jesus comes back to the temple again, and he spends the whole day teaching. He's preaching in the temple, and then in the afternoon, he leaves eastward outside of the city, and he goes up to the Mount of Olives, and he begins to teach there. He gives some incredible, powerful prophecies about the end times and the things to come, and can I just challenge us today? We need to be attentive to the teaching of Jesus. The Bible says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus is the Word of God. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That means when you don't know which way to go, Jesus is the way. That means when when you're not sure which way is up, you're not sure what you should do or or what choice you should make, and I mean, you're, you're, you're just confused. Jesus is the truth. And when you feel like hope is gone and, and you don't know what tomorrow holds, Jesus said, I am the life. We ought to lean in to what Jesus says. He spent the whole day teaching. And then on Wednesday, the Bible is strangely silent about Jesus' activity. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we don't really know what Jesus said on Wednesday, but there is something that we do know. Often, Wednesday is referred to as Spy Wednesday because we know that Judas, one of his 12 disciples, had gone and cut a deal with the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day. He asked them, how much will you give me to betray Jesus to you? And he cut a deal for treachery against the kingdom of God for 30 pieces of silver. 
Judas made a plan to betray Jesus. Now, here's what amazes me about Wednesday. It's not what Jesus said. It's what he didn't say. Because we know from Scripture that Jesus was well aware. He knew this was going to happen. He knew who was going to do it. And what we don't read in Scripture is we don't find Jesus having a confrontation with Judas. We don't find him backing him into a corner saying, what are you up to, Judas? What do you think you're trying to do? Don't, don't go meet with them, Judas. You can't go over there and talk to them. No, no, we don't see any of that. In spite of the reality that Jesus knows, he is amazingly silent. And Wednesday communicates this reality to me, that God will give you every opportunity to be saved. He'll give you every opportunity to follow him and to know him and to love him and to have your name written down in heaven's annals, but he will not make you love him. You have a choice today. You didn't forfeit that choice when you decided to come to church. It's up to you. He won't make you love him. He gave his only son's lifeblood to save you, but he left the choice up to you. Because if it wasn't a choice, it wouldn't be love. So he won't force your hand. In fact, you can betray, betray him to his face, and, and that's what Judas would do. What, what's amazing to me about Wednesday is that Jesus is not saying anything or doing anything to stop him. But what's even more amazing is what he does do the next day. Because on Thursday, it's time to prepare for the Passover. And Jesus gives his disciples instructions to go into the city and to prepare the room. And he invites all 12 of them to come and to join with him for the Passover feast. All 12 knowing that, that when Judas comes to the table, there's coins jingling in his pocket, knowing that before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, Peter, one of his best friends, is gonna deny three times that he even knows Jesus. He's gonna curse his name. Jesus told those 12 disciples, all of you are going to fall away. For the scripture says, you strike the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. He knows all of this. And yet he invites everyone to the table. Can I tell you on this Easter Sunday, that's grace. That's grace. Grace says, you don't deserve to be here, but I saved you a seat. Grace says, none of you have a right to partake of this juice that represents my blood and to eat of this bread that represents my body. None of you are worthy, and yet all of you are welcome. And can I just say, that's still the invitation that's on the table today. Yours didn't get lost in the mail. That's the invitation of grace. Whosoever will may come, the Bible says, and drink freely from the waters of life. That's the invitation that is ours. And none of us deserve it. Paul said this in Romans 3, in verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. I, I, yesterday, was, yesterday was my dog's birthday. I don't know if you keep track of that stuff in your house. My wife happens to be crazy about our dog, and so are our three daughters. And so, yes, after the Easter egg hunt party, we went home, we had another party. It was our dog's birthday. And so we, we had a little celebration, and they had fun, and they gave her way too many dog treats, and 
She ate food she's not supposed to get, but it's her birthday. And somewhere in all of the festivities, I started thinking about you and this service and this message. And I was reminded of a statement that Ann Landers said that I think is very fitting. She said, don't accept your dog's adoration as conclusive evidence that you are wonderful. (laughs) Isn't that good advice? I mean, your dog may jump and skip and run circles when you walk in the room, but all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. You're not as good as your dog thinks you are. But Jesus, this is not only grace. I mean, his grace is amazing. His grace is amazing. And so not only does Jesus invite them and say, you know, you don't deserve a seat, but I saved you one. You can come to the table. Not only does he do that, he actually serves them. See, the custom of the day was that when you come to a, a dinner like this, because, you know, they, everybody's feet were dirty and dusty from these Palestine roads, and so when you would come, there would be a servant who would wash everyone's feet. But if there was no servant, then somebody that's a guest would volunteer to take that humble position and wash everybody else's feet because they didn't sit at high tables like us. They reclined on the floor and you didn't want to be next to somebody's stinky feet while you're eating dinner. So somebody had to do it. And one by one, the disciples come in and they see there's no servants and you know they're just kind of, oh, I was in a conversation. I, I didn't realize nobody was doing that. You know how that is. Like everybody's waiting to pick up the tab. Oh, is, did they bring the bill? I didn't know they brought the bill. Did you want to get, oh, I get, or you wanted to get it? No. It was that kind of deal. Not Jesus. He goes right to the corner, he picks up the basin, he fills it with water, he grabs the towel, he begins to wash their feet. They can't believe it. Peter objects. Jesus says, no, let me do it. Jesus washes every one of their feet. He, he, he decides, I mean, if there was ever a night that Jesus could take a day off, you know, that he could pull rank, I mean, he knows he's about to be arrested. He's going to go to the cross. This is a day that he's been in anguish over. And instead, he opts to give an illustrated sermon. He teaches them something that is so important, something they they cannot move forward if they don't grasp this truth. And so he says to them, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Jesus teaches them humility. Don't ever consider yourself better than one another. The greatest among you is the servant of all. And Jesus takes the posture of a servant and says, now you've seen how it's done. This is how you live this thing out. And then they sing a song together. And then from there, they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane where they pray. The Bible says Jesus wrestled in sorrow with the will of God in prayer. Matthew 26, 39 says this, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, make this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. See, Jesus is fully God, yes, but he's also fully man. And in this moment, we we see a little bit of Jesus' humanity. We see that the reality is he's going into something that in his flesh he wants no part of. Who would? Who would want to be crucified? 
And so he says, God, if there's any other way, I know what your plan is. I just don't know about this, this process. If there's any other way that this can be done, Lord God, make it so. And yet he comes to this conclusion, yet not my will, but yours be done. And as we look into Thursday night's events, I just wonder if you could follow Jesus into that garden today. I just wonder if you could follow him into that place where you struggle with your own desires, you struggle with your own disappointments and your own dreams, and you come to the place where you say, God, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is praying. A little while longer, Judas arrives. He kisses Jesus on the cheek. It's, it's the signal that he had conspired ahead of time with the mob. I'll indicate which one Jesus is in the dark of night by greeting him with a kiss on the cheek. Jesus is arrested. The Bible says they bound his hands. They take him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Then they take him from there to Pilate. He stands trial before Pilate. He's sent to Herod. Stands trial before Herod, before he's sent back to Pilate again. Now it's early Friday morning. Jesus has been taken through this mock trial and pushed towards a guilty verdict. He's been punched. He's been spit on. His beard has been plucked out of his face. They've already taken a crown of thorns because he had been called the king of the Jews. They shoved that crown of thorns on his head and they put a purple garment on his back. They took a Roman flagrum and they, they beat him with the cat of nine tails 39 times, ripping his flesh and sinew apart. And now early Friday morning, Pilate washes his hands and says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Take him away, let him be crucified. And at 9 a.m. on Friday morning, after carrying his own cross outside of the city down the Via Della Rosa, the road of suffering. Jesus goes up Golgotha's hill, the hill of the skull. And he's nailed to that cross through his hands and his feet. And at 9 a.m., Jesus is lifted up, just like he said he would be. He's lifted up. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. That's what he was talking about when he said it. He wasn't talking about people singing on Sunday morning. He was talking about an image, a sacrificial savior hanging on a cross that would absolutely change the world. A moment we would all mark our calendars by. Jesus was lifted up. The Bible says from noon that afternoon till three in the afternoon, the sky grew dark. Darkness covered the land. Jesus called out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just a few moments later, he said something else. Luke 23, 46 records it. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. That was actually a quotation from Psalm 31, 5. The last words on Jesus' lips was from the word of God. Jesus was quoting a psalm. It's all about trusting God in the midst of distressing circumstances. 
what Jesus had, had showed us in the garden, he now modeled for us on Golgotha. He gave his life. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And he died. It seems like every year somebody asks me the question, why do they call Good Friday good? I mean, that's terrible. This year, the question came from my youngest daughter. On Friday, Mally asked me, why do we call it good? Maybe you've wondered that. I mean, if that sounds terrible, why, why do we call that good? Well, I want to tell you why we call it good. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is what happened. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yes, Jesus was brutalized. He was executed. He was hung on a Roman cross. No, he didn't deserve it. Yes, he really died. And after he died, they took him off that cross and they laid him in a tomb that belonged to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. They laid him in a borrowed tomb. And I got to thinking this week about that phrase, a borrowed tomb. I love that phrase, a borrowed tomb. I think if I owned a cemetery, I would rent people burial plots. It's a borrowed tomb. See, you don't understand what I'm saying, but every Christian who has ever trusted Jesus and lived and died in the faith is buried in a borrowed tomb right now. It's a borrowed tomb. No intention of staying there. Because Jesus lived, Paul declared to us in 1 Corinthians 15, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. Don't miss this today. The resurrection declaration is not just Jesus lives. The declaration of Easter is because he lives, we too have victory over the grave. We have life over the grave. That's why it's good. Friday is good because it's forever changed the powers of the enemy. Death, hell, and the grave were conquered. And then we get to Saturday and Sunday. I was thinking about the difference between Saturday and Sunday. You know, Saturday, if you're a disciple, is the longest day of your life. I mean, this is the longest, darkest day of despair that you or I could ever imagine. I mean, if Jesus was the hope of the world, you wake up on Saturday morning to this reality. Hope has died. That's what's on their mind. That's the reality that they are processing. Where do you go from the reality that hope has died? And I just have this sense that there may even be some people today that you're living stuck on Saturday. You're living thinking that hope is gone. But if you feel that way, can I just declare to you that Easter is God's answer to hopelessness. Easter is the answer because hope is alive. And Luke tells us that when the disciples heard the women's report, those who had gone first and saw the empty tomb and met the angel and fell and worshiped at the feet of Jesus, they ran back to the disciples just like they were told to. But the Bible says that when they told the disciples what they had seen, they couldn't believe it. Not like, oh, I can't believe it. Like, I don't believe it. L listen, 
to it in the story. Luke 24, verse 11 and 12. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. There's a lot of people, they, they, they come this far, but they won't go any farther. There's, there's people that maybe you're even listening to this message and sounds good, but I just, I mean, come on, come on. I mean, there's a pushback that says, this sounds like nonsense. There's people that ignored your invitation. They didn't come to church on Easter. I'll meet you at lunch. Why? Because this sounds like nonsense. They didn't believe him. But look at the next verse. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. I want you to think about the difference from Saturday to Sunday. On Saturday, Peter's running on empty. I mean, hope has died. Have you ever felt that way? Like you're running on empty? I, I, I felt that way this week. I mean, literally, I experienced this. On Tuesday, I got up to come to work and, and the gas light came on in my car. And I decided, you know what? I just wanna get to the office I'll get gas at lunch. Well, I got here and as often happens, I got busy and I never left for lunch. And then in the afternoon, my alarm goes off on my phone reminding me it's my day to pick up the kids from school. So I drop what I'm doing, I go downstairs, I get in the car and sure enough, there's that light reminding me, you're empty. And so I'm driving up the hill to pick up the kids from school and, and I just, I can't get past this thought. I don't have enough to make it. Like, I'm gonna be that dad in the line that sitting there, everybody goes, oh, did your battery die? No, I just ran out of gas. Oh, you, you don't have one of those little needles that tells you in three days you're gonna need to fill up again? You don't, you don't have one of those? So I get up the hill and I'm waiting in line. Everybody else is enjoying their air conditioning. Not me, I turn that thing off. I'm conserving fuel now. I can't, I can't relax. I'm thinking, I don't have enough. You ever felt empty? I'm not gonna make it. I'm wondering, should I start it back up? The kids are coming out. Maybe I should just open the door and like push my way, you know, like put it in neutral. Just kind of Fred Flintstone th through the parking lot. Finally, we got back down the hill. I just remember like the, the relief of being like, okay, I made it to the gas station. I'm not gonna run out of gas. That, that was Peter on Saturday. He's running on empty, but he made one decision that changed everything on Sunday morning. While everybody else says, I can't, I can't grab that. I can't wrap my mind around this. This seems like nonsense. Peter, it says, he got up and he ran to the tomb. While everybody else is running on empty, Peter runs to empty. He runs too empty. That's what I wanna challenge you to do today. Don't spend another day of your life running on empty, hoping I got enough to make it. Maybe I'll make it, maybe I'll get through. 
Don't run on empty any longer. Run to empty. Run to an empty tomb. Run to a risen Savior. Run to victory and life and hope beyond the grave. Run to empty today. If the empty tomb is enough to change our perspective on the most horrific day and call Friday good, good Friday, then how much could the reality of a risen Savior change your perspective on everything? everything. So I want to pray for you today. In fact, I want to ask you to pray. If you're here and and you don't have a relationship with Jesus and you don't you don't know what it is to have resurrection life like we sang about. More than a story. More than a song. You don't know what it is to, to feel acceptance from God and to know that he's your father. I want to invite you to pray a simple prayer. The Bible says this. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. That's not complicated, but it has to be sincere. I want to ask you to bow your head with me all over this room. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, but you want to, Would you just say this prayer right where you're sitting? Just say to Jesus, Jesus, I give you my life. Say, that's it? Yeah, that's it. That's where it begins. Asking Jesus to save you doesn't require a lot. Trusting him for the rest of your life, now that's going to be a challenge and his spirit's going to help you. But it begins with a prayer. Jesus, I give you my life. Right now, all over this room, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. This is just between you and God. But if you need to come to Jesus today to be your Lord and Savior, would you just pray that prayer right now to him? Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my life. And if you just prayed that prayer, I want to tell you, according to his promises and his word, he'll forgive your sins. He won't hold them against you. The Bible says... He cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. It's immeasurable how far he has removed your sin from his memory. He loves you that much. And he'll save you and he'll redeem you and he'll fill you with his spirit, his resurrection power. Lord, right now, let transformation come into our hearts and lives. Jesus, Jesus, we give you our lives. Amen. I want to ask you to do something with me. Would you stand all over this room? We're going to close this service. I'm going to, I'm going to pray a closing prayer. But right now, I've asked some men and women if they would come. Some of our prayer team is coming, and they're just going to stand here in the front of this church. If you're here today and you've got a need in your life, Maybe you're already walking with the Lord. Maybe you've got a relationship with Jesus and you just got a need in your life. You need prayer for healing, for direction, for comfort, whatever it might be. I want you to know that this team is here because we believe in the power of prayer. And we want to lift you, but we can't lift you if we can't reach you. 
And so we want to pray for you. So while I pray this closing prayer, I want to invite you, you can step out, even while we pray, step out from the altar, from the aisle, and just come down to this altar. If you just prayed that prayer a moment ago and you said, Jesus, I give you my life, then then I, I want to appeal to you. Please come. Because if you came and you prayed that prayer today, you began something. Praying that prayer is not the finish line of faith, it's the starting block. You began something and we want to help you. In fact, we've got a book that they'll give to you, a resource to just help you to process what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So if you want prayer today for any of these reasons, while I pray this closing prayer, I want to invite you to come and meet with one of these altar team members. Father, today we just thank you so much for the empty tomb, for the empty cross. God, we thank you for resurrection life in Jesus. God, we thank you that hope springs up eternal. God, thank you today that you're still rolling stones away. You're still moving adversities out of our life. You're still inviting us to come, to run too empty, and to gaze into your victory. God, I pray today that we would be encouraged and inspired to live our lives every day in light of your resurrection. Not running on our own strength, which always runs out, but running to yours, which is an endless supply. God, we thank you for your grace in this service today. Lord, bless every family as we celebrate this Easter throughout the rest of the day. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Amen. Can we give God praise one more time today? Amen. Amen.